Good morning. Would you stand with me today, church, as we honor God, as we read the scriptures? Scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 28. You can find it on the screen to your left and your right. After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. All God's people said, Amen. amen. You may be seated. We've been saying so far, as you can tell, that no matter where you're coming from today, you can live a better story. That's our claim. Our claim is you can live a better story today. And so this Easter, I want to give you three reasons why, if the resurrection is true, you can live a better story. First, it's because you have a better past than you know. Second, you've got a better present than you can see. And finally, you got a better future than you could ever believe. Number one, let's go and see why you got a, a better past than you know. You know, when you read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see that they all record the same event, that on Easter Sunday morning, when the women followers of Jesus went to his tomb, they found it empty, and they later saw and spoke with Jesus alive again. Now, that's the story. And there are usually one of two main reactions to it. The first reaction people have is you sort of hear this and you sort of underthink it, so to speak. You underthink it, you hear it, and you know you've heard it and you've heard it again and you believe it and you believed it again and the power of it is sort of diminished over time and it just sort of washes over you in your nice Easter suit today. You underthink it, or you hear it and you sort of overthink it in a way. Your grid, or your worldview, or your education, or your degrees sort of cause you to filter this out, and you reject it, and you're just sort of here because someone arm-twisted you, or you're married to someone who's supposed to be here, or you took a bribe and said you'd, you know, you'd lunch bought for you if you came today, you know. 
you reject it. You overthink it. Jesus may have lived. You say certainly, you know, he died if he lived, but resurrected back to life. Come on, man. So no matter where you are in that spectrum, whether you'd say you have believed the gospels and it's changed your life or you're here and you're saying, man, I would never believe that kind of thing, or you're somewhere in between, I want you to today, if you would, for a moment, just to sort of think about that claim of the resurrection in a new light for a new reason today. Consider this. In the short lifetime of Jesus of Nazareth, there were around 15 different messianic movements in Israel, and all of them ended the same way. The leader died, the followers dispersed, and you never hear from any of them ever again. As a matter of fact, you probably didn't even know that. And if you did, you'd be hard-pressed to name one of the leaders of those movements. Why? Because at the bottom of them was what? Was a dead man. But look at Christianity. Why did it emerge, and not just emerge, but explode in the first century despite every effort to exterminate it? Well, because at the center of it was, yes, a dead man, but a dead man who came back to life and hundreds of people who claimed to have seen him and talk with them. And of course, it's at this point that our very cynical view of people from the past starts to emerge. It's something that C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is the view many of us hold today, which is that we are inherently smarter than anyone who's lived in the past because we've got like air conditioning and a smartphone in our hands today, right? We think, man, everybody in the past was superstitious and whatever. They couldn't believe or understand. They just sort of chalked up to the gods, you know. Now, if you feel like you're smarter than people in the past just because you're sucking air today, I've actually got, I've got Einstein and Plato and Augustine out in the lobby, and they want to have a conversation with you when we're done. And I'm sure you'll contribute quite a lot to their conversation. Now, there's no doubt that some people, many people in the past, ancient cultures were superstitious. Yes, they chalked stuff up to the gods that they couldn't explain. But is that what's happening here? Because to say that about these people, that's taking the easy way out. There's been quite a lot of scholarship done around the fact that the Jewish people were the least likely to believe that one person alone would be resurrected. Now, some of the Jews thought there was no such thing as a resurrection. Those were the Sadducees. Others thought the resurrection, yeah, it might happen at the end of time one day. Those were the Pharisees. But they say that one person at one period in time could be resurrected and that that one person was God in the flesh wasn't just impossible to believe, it was blasphemy. See, the Greeks and the Romans, yeah, they, they had gods who came and took on bodies, but not Yahweh, not the Jewish God. See, you say you've got a worldview today that doesn't allow the resurrection to happen. I say the Jews had a worldview that leaned harder than yours does against that happening. You say, it's hard for me to believe in this. I say for the Jews, it was impossible for them to believe in this. And one of the reasons you can know this is just through looking at the actions of Jesus's followers on that first Easter Sunday. Because throughout his life, Jesus had repeatedly predicted he would be crucified, 
he would die and rise again. Like in Matthew's gospel, I think it's there at least three times, which means he likely said it more than that. He said it over and over. And yet look at Easter Sunday. Were any of the disciples there? No. If they had even a glimmer of hope that what Jesus had said would come true, that there was a possibility of the resurrection, there would have been a mad rush to get to the tomb on that Sunday to await Jesus' glorious rising, right? I mean, think about it. They could have sold tickets, right? I mean, put up concession stands, pennants, hats, we're number one. They could have talked all their skeptic friends into coming, right? I mean, look, you guys are not going to believe this one. It's his best trick. Just wait for it. Here he comes any minute. Now, none of them were there. And even the women who do go, what were they carrying? Embalming agents and spices. Why? Because they expected to find a dead body. None of them, not his closest followers, expected he would rise. It was too hard for them to believe until they saw it with their own eyes. They were as skeptical, if not more, than you. Speaking of the women, Matthew's decision to include them was nothing short of controversial. Uh, there was this Greek philosopher, early Greek philosopher named Celsus. And Celsus was one of the earliest and strongest critics of Christianity. He was sort of the original late night talk show TV host, you know, the original Bill Maher or Richard Dawkins. And he wrote books against Christianity to discredit him. Uh, his book was called The True Word, and it was dedicated to refuting the Gospels. And in it, he gives, in his day, one of the strongest reasons why Christianity, why the Gospels, should not be believed. And here's what he said. He said, Christianity should not be believed because the Gospel accounts rest on the testimony of women. And he said, we all know that women are hysterical. And the ancient world all said, yeah, well, that's kind of a problem. Yeah, we all know that, right? I mean, yeah, it's just bias coming through. The point is that Matthew only includes the women here. It only hurts him. If he's just trying to make something up, if he's trying to make up a myth or a legend, insisting women were the ones who saw and believed, literally weakened his argument. The only reason he would ever included, is if that really happened. And of course, Matthew doesn't just mention the women in general, but by name here. And in Mark's gospel, they're mentioned by name over and over and over. Why by name? Well, uh, a man by the name of Dr. Richard Bauckham is a renowned British historian, and he argues, and he knows a thing or two about history, that this is how ancient writers did history. This is how they quoted people on the news, this is how they said, go interview them if you'd like. They put down names, basically, as footnotes. And ancient historians relied on eyewitness oral testimony above all. And by putting the names here, Matthew was saying loud and clear, hey, this is history. It's fact. Go talk to them if you like. What's the point of all this? The point is, this really happened. And the claim that this really happened is at the core, it's at the epicenter of the rise of Christianity. And if Jesus didn't rise, then you today, you've got to come up with a good reason for why Christianity survived and the other messianic movements didn't. Why it got started in the place least likely for it to survive. The only piece that fits that puzzle is the resurrection as fact piece. So what does this mean for your past today? Your past. Well, all right. I want you now 
to think of, what you feel like is maybe the worst thing that's happened to you. The thing you feel has cut you down, robbed you, hurt you, warped you, broken you. Think of that. Now think of the empty tomb and look at it. See, the resurrection means that you can have a better past because it means that Jesus' past no longer defines him. It says that tragedy, right, that hurt or pain or loss, if your faith in Jesus is not your end, it's only your beginning. It's the beginning of something greater than you could ever have seen. The New Testament writer Paul puts it like this. He says, if the, if the resurrection is true, he says, your ear hasn't heard, your mind hasn't conceived, it hasn't even come into your heart, all that God has prepared for you, no matter what's happened to you. The resurrection means your past and your suffering like Jesus' past and suffering aren't and weren't all for nothing. I mean, think about Jesus' past, right? It looked traumatic, like there was no purpose in it except there was all along, though no one could see it, not even the ones closest to it. And the same is true of your past today, if the resurrection is true. It's not for nothing, your past. Jesus' past overwhelms yours and turns even a death into a gift. That's number one. You can have a better past than you know. Number two, you can have actually a better present, a better today. Let's look and move on in the story. Verse eight says, so the women hurried away from the tomb afraid. Sounds about right. Yet filled with joy, ran to tell his disciples. Jesus met them. Verse 10, he said to them, don't be afraid. Why? Because they were go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they'll see me. Now, This is amazing. Look what Jesus says here. He says, go tell my who. Who does he say? My who? My brothers. Yeah. I mean, think about all the things he could have said. Now, I don't know about you, but if that was me in that moment, I I might have, I, I could have, I probably would have said, you go tell those faithless backstabbing cowards. They better show up on time because I'm back, baby. Just like I said I would be. So go tell those slow, limited-thinking men of low vision. They better get ready to grovel and kiss my sandals. Because that's what they get for denying me. No, he says who? Go tell my brothers. My brothers. Over in Mark's gospel, he says, go tell my brothers and Peter and Peter to meet me, that I want to see them. Why Peter? Well, he says Peter because if the rest of them were bad, Jesus, excuse me, Peter, Peter was the worst. Peter denied he ever even knew Jesus over and over. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to have been Peter in that moment. He had been chosen by Jesus, followed him, seen the miracles, you know, got the free food. He heard the teaching. He was up with them on the mountain when Jesus's supernatural superpower glory began to leak out. He was transfigured, the gospels say, right in front of Peter's eyes. But then when the pressure came, Peter cracked and in a shame and honor culture, to dishonor your rabbi, a parent, or a teacher was as bad as it got. He was one step short of being a second Judas. And yet Jesus singles him out, the worst, in the middle of all his shame, in Peter's present moment. Why? Here's why. 
History tells us that days from now, Peter was about to become the leader of this whole Jesus movement thing. He was about to stand up in front of thousands, though he didn't know it. He was about to wrestle with forces beyond him in an empire that hated him and persecuted him, and he would face unimaginable loss and persecution and a death. What did he need? What did he need to make it? Oh, Peter needed in that present moment, in his life in shambles, what you and I need today in our present moment, Peter needed an encounter with the grace of God. He needed an encounter with the grace of God. See, every other faith system today and throughout history is all about how you must, you know, keep the commandments or you're out. Keep the pillars or you're out. Walk the eightfold noble path or you're out. But think about it. Christianity has, in contrast, at its center, a founder who died and a leader who failed. It's birthed in weakness, not in conquest or the sword. That's astonishing. Why? To show you this is something else altogether. You say, well, those all things, those are, you know, antiquated systems of belief. I'm a modern person. Of course, Jesus should have taken him back and accepted him, been tolerant of Peter's failings. It was the right thing to do. But listen, our modern view, you know this, of acceptance and tolerance is so temperamental. It's like a roller coaster up and down. We say, you know, you should accept everyone. Oh, but then we, we unfriend people on Facebook who say stuff we don't like. We say we ought to be tolerant, right, of everybody. But then we cut people off at the knees, you know, say, you know, bye, Felicia. The people we don't agree with our point of view, we don't we don't really accept people today, right? Either that person or group performs or they're out. But the gospel goes way beyond either religious performance or modern tolerance because of what Jesus shows you with Peter right here, that the gospel is about grace and therefore this truth, that those who have been forgiven much love much. And if you want to know today why so many church people and religious people are so mean-spirited, It's because they've never encountered or they've forgotten. They have been forgiven much. See, when you've you've been forgiven much, you love much. When you've forgotten, you've been forgiven much. You can't love much. And if you want to know, on the other hand, why so many secular people are so mean-spirited, though they talk about tolerance, it's because they refuse to believe they need to be forgiven much. And therefore, they cannot love much. And if you want to know why Christianity caught on like wildfire in the first century, it was in addition to the claim that a man rose from a dead, it was through lives that loved much. So you can only give what you have. And if you've got no love, you can't give it. Look at how much love Peter and those disciples gave away. They could give it away because they received it right here in spades. They saw they were included on purpose in God's family, though they did not deserve it. And no matter what you've done today or where you've been, if it's been forever since you've thought about God or church or faith or Jesus, whether you're Stuck in a moment you can't get out of, to quote you too. Jesus' words to Peter are words for you. No matter what you've done or how you might have betrayed him, he wants you back. He wants you back. Not to grovel, but to embrace as a brother, as a sister, as family. That's grace.
You can have a better present if you'll hear him say to you, I want you back. You can have a better present than you know. But third and finally, I want to show you why if the resurrection is true, you can have a better future than you could ever believe. Look at Jesus' final words here, verse 18. And he came to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, basically everywhere. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I want to pause briefly here. I'm going to talk to all our church mosaic people and ask you a series of questions here. Did Jesus say his last final words, his great commission to us, did he say, hey, y'all, go and focus Now, here's my plan for the world. Get a great choir together for that Easter Sunday special. Then he said, let's focus on having really, really spectacular sermons. Then he said, let's serve free hot coffee in the lobby. Then he said, let's focus, you know, on intercession as the main purpose of the ministry, about casting out demons, church people, seeking spiritual gifts. Now, listen, we want to create a compelling atmosphere here because we care about it. We care about our facility. We care about talking to your heart and your head. So our facility, Music Sundays, we hope to make great. We want you to come back if you're new here. We do. Because we, I think your life's going to be better here than just watching TV or playing golf on Sundays. And if you're a Christian person here, you should know we want to go big. We desire to raise up intercessors to see dark spiritual forces broken. We believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit, therefore, today. But nowhere does the risen Son of God tell us to focus singularly, even though we ought to do all that stuff, on great sermons, revival, intercession for hours, that we ought to do all that. But what did he actually tell us to do? He says, make disciples. Actually, he said, go and make disciples to take what you've received from Jesus and begin to pour it into others. And he says, not just here, but he says, in all nations. That word means all people groups everywhere. There's a kind of a people group, business community, education, medicine, schools, politics, arts, everywhere. Go make disciples. And what does a disciple look like? Briefly, he says, he tells you, it says someone who obeys him. Jesus, he's reprioritizing your life for you. You're welcome. It's the Easter gift. It's in your Easter basket today. You didn't know you got that, but you did. Being a disciple means you remember it's not your life anymore. But listen, as we do this, as we become this, oh, church friends, look what Jesus says. He says, I will be with you as you make disciples. And actually that you there is plural, as in I will be with you all, y'all. And church, I believe that because we've made this priority, our priority, I believe he has been with us. People we see come to faith regularly here, be baptized every month. We've given more money away to missions and charity organizations than any other year. More people involved in community groups, discipleship groups, taking more trips around the world than we've ever taken. That's just the stuff I got time to talk about. I'd say he's been with us. But there's one more thing, one more thing here today I have to get to before we're done. It's actually my favorite part of the whole passage because Jesus doesn't just say he's with us, but what he says here is even greater than our minds can grasp. What does he say? He says he is with us. He promises to be with us even unto the end 
of the age. He's saying, in other words, at the end of the world's story, no matter what has happened, Jesus is saying, because I am risen, I'm going to make everything right. He's saying, I'm going to wipe away every tear, restore every broken person who believes in me. In other words, Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am the happy ending to the universe, to the universe's story. Look at Tolkien says. He says, it is the mark of a good tale, a good story, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give. When the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beating and lifting of the heart, near to or accompanied by tears, in the turn we get a piercing glimpse of joy and a heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story, and lets a gleam come through joy beyond the walls of this world. As poignant as grief, the Gospels contain a story which embraces the essence of all fairy tales, but this story has entered history and the primary real world. The Gospel, therefore, has not abrogated legends, but has hallowed them, especially happy endings. See, Tolkien's saying there's there's an art form called the fairy tale. And the best part of the fairy tale is the happy ending, right? It's the moment when light breaks through the darkness, when impending defeat is turned to victory against all odds, when the the hero or the heroine is rescued and they live. He says, that's what our hearts actually long for. And that's why humankind, of course, for centuries has longed for this love, this flock to plays and stories and books and movies that have happy endings. And we've loved them right up until the late 20th and early 21st century with a massive rise in skepticism. And if you, you know, you got 14 or so kids like I do and you don't go to movies anymore, you just read movie reviews like I do. You'll see that art critics, movie critics, for the most part, hate happy endings. They, they say, you know, that, that's, for, that's just for kids. That's why folks like Steven Spielberg for most of his career, until he started making darker stuff like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan. Those are great movies, of course. But until he started making the darker stuff, he was looked down upon. Critics just heaped derision on him. You know, E.T., Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park, happy endings. I mean, come on. Real life, they said, doesn't work that way. But if that's true, if real life doesn't work that way, here's what that means. That means every time that you see a movie, that you, you read a story, that you hear a thrilling finish or a part of a piece of music and your heart leaps and it soars and your heart longs for it to be true, that you want to get inside that and make that real, you've got to stuff it down. You've got to remind yourself, oh, real life doesn't work like that. That's for suckers. That's for the ignorant. That's just for kids. The universe isn't like that. But Jesus Christ says here, Matthew 28, oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. He says, I stand at the end of the age, at the end of history. Every cross gets swallowed up in resurrection. Evil will be overcome by good. He is every happy ending you've ever seen in every story or movie. He's the Superman who rises up out of the grave, who suspends time and space and history to rescue his loved one, his bride, us, the church, out of the grave and puts the world right. He's the brave knight who charges the gates of hell, who defeats the great dragon, who awakens the bride from the sleep of death with this touch he's the nobody from the desert who flies in to defeat the empire the first order he's the hero who emerges out of danger unexpectedly and whenever you experience that moment in art the moment of the turn and you weep and you say oh god let it be true of me you're experiencing hear me a piece a piece of the resurrection 
and that begins to heal your heart and your story bit by bit. See, if your faith and trust are in him and the resurrection, he's at the end of your story. No matter how broken your life or body's been to this point, the resurrection means your tragedy, your divorce, your brokenness don't define you because they're not forever. They're not at the end of the age. (laughs) Jesus is. And because the resurrection is true, that means we have a better future than we could ever imagine. And we can, you can, live a better story.